listener production. Michelle Law is an overachiever. Born and raised on the Sunshine Coast, Michelle grew up part of a big Chinese-Australian family in a fairly monocultural town. It made Michelle both very aware and a little resistant to her own Chineseness. As an adult, she has embraced the cross-cultural narrative though, putting her experiences into writing books, essays, plays and television series. She's also written about developing an autoimmune condition called alopecia, which causes baldness. As a teenager, that was pretty tough. But she's turned her own challenges into comedy gold. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way where Tate McGregor will join me to talk about what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with the incomparable Michelle Law, a conversation about race, about writing and about representation. Michelle Law, welcome to The Weekend Briefing and happy summer holidays. Kind of happy, kind of awkward. It's a weird time. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks so much for having me. You have had and you are having an enormous amount of success while you're still really young. I want to ask, does that change the way that people around you view that success, do you think? Oh my gosh, what a massive question to start off with. I sort of love it though. I asked you how you were. (laughs) It's really interesting. I mean, I guess in the course of my career, definitely when I was starting out, I did meet older people in the industry who weren't even what you would classify as old. I would Mm. just say older than me. You sort of felt like you had to earn your way to success by struggling like they did. And I think that's because they weren't seeing the invisible struggles that I was going through. And so I feel like since I've turned 30, which was a year and a bit ago, that sort of lent me some legitimacy. I feel like when you're in your 20s, especially people, I think in every sector, but in the arts as well, it's like, oh, you're still a baby. You know, you don't really know what you're doing. You're just starting out. I've been working as a writer and a performer for over a decade now. I feel like when you're younger, there is a certain pressure to succeed earlier and people in the industry can enforce that on you a bit and sort of push you in directions where you're not quite ready to. So I think everyone's sort of on their own individual journey to accepting that their career trajectory is really different to everyone else's and not falling into the trap of feeling uncomfortable by being compared to other people, which is just going to happen anyway, like people your age or people who are doing similar things to you and just keep on chipping away at at what you're doing. You were writing books and plays and television shows when I think a lot of people of a similar age were travelling the world back when we did that, getting drunk, going to parties. Do you think there was a sense of expectation from people around you? Did that come from family or was that more a personal drive to kind of push through and start doing, I suppose, what is a very grown-up job quite early? I think I fell into it and not, I didn't realise it was a grown-up job until yeah. I it hit me until now where I'm like, okay, I really am running, running my own business 
I think tax time has made me realise that a lot more (laughs) Uh, and realising that it is quite a big responsibility. You know, you're in charge of your own branding and and your own finances and and all of that and managing clients and things like that. I think um, I've always been a bit of a workaholic and that's always come from within myself as opposed to parents or, or family. My parents were really not the stereotype of being tiger Chinese parents in yeah. any sense of the word. Um, and I wonder if that's if because my two elder siblings did sort of follow more conventional pathways. Uh, so my eldest sister is a primary school teacher and my eldest brother, he works in engineering. I wonder if that freed up the last three children to be more artsy. Yeah, right. They ticked the sensible <laughs> career box with the first two yeah, kids. Yeah, I do wonder if that's part of it. But also I just never really felt that pressure. The only pressure I randomly felt from my dad when I was finishing high school was, oh, maybe you could be a lawyer or maybe you could be an anchor woman. And I was like, Dad, that is so random. <laughs> and he <laughs> that was all I really heard from him about it, maybe one or two conversations but never any real pressure. I think because I also grew up in quite an overprotective household and I wasn't one to sort of go to a lot of parties because I had no choice. I sort of had quite bad social anxiety for a long time. And so retreating into work felt like a safe space and something that I could Mm. control. And then it sort of just snowballed from there, I think. And then my work became my life which I'm sort of starting to unlearn now and in like maybe the last five years or so, just finding more of a balance again. What does that involve? I Like I like the concept of that. (laughs) I like the idea of I'm going to unlearn work as my primary focus. But when work's your primary focus, it also tends to be quite defining of who you are. How have you stepped back from that? I've enforced a time during the day where I stop work unless it's a really urgent deadline. So I'll normally clock off like any other full-time worker around 5 p.m. I have proper weekends and that was something that my psychologist made me do. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And she was saying that rest and relaxation and not doing anything is actually part of the work. I think that was her really sneaky way of getting me to do it. Like this Making you feel like you were working? Yeah, it's part of working, Michelle. When you let your brain rest and not, not do anything, that's actually giving yourself the space and I guess the creative space as well to just exist and be. Mm. And ultimately that really benefits anything that you're working on creatively because you're able to give it your 100% attention and be engaged with it. Whereas before I was really just burning out every couple of months and and running on pretty low energy, really diverted a lot of my energy to taking care of, you know, physical and mental health and being stricter with myself. I think you sound like a goddess type character. I mean, these are all things the rest of us should be doing. It's not anything I've managed. I've spent the last three weeks holidaying and not doing anything but working, to be honest. Talk to me about the work though, because that's why we're here. Tell me about Asian Girls Are Going Places. That's the title of your new book. Do you think you could introduce it to us? Oh, absolutely. I see it as a life advice book for Asian women existing in the world um, with a bit of a travel angle as well. For me, I wrote it because 
I really felt in the wake of COVID-19, there was just so much anti-Asian racism going on around the world. And I wanted to provide some sort of antidote to that and just show Asian women that the world still belongs to them and they can feel free and safe in it. And so the chapters are divided into things like, you know, health and self-care and safety, food, traveling with family, traveling by yourself, traveling with friends, all the really important things in life, I think, and how to sort of find joy and in travel again and and look forward to it as the world starts opening up really slowly. You mentioned that anti-Asian racism, that I am sure a whole lot of people who are listening to this podcast right now experienced in the early part of the pandemic. The pandemic has gone for so long that I feel like a lot of us have forgotten what those early months were like. But I remember, you know, walking through Chinatown in Melbourne and it was completely empty. And this was before we were locking down or wearing masks. This was Mm -hmm. when all the other shops were really busy. Can you tell me from your interviews, from your own experience, from friends and family, what that period of time was like? It was really scary because it felt like history. Well, it was history repeating itself because this country has such a cyclical history of anti-Asian racism to when Chinese people first arrived two centuries ago on the gold fields to, you know, again, with the rise of one nation in the nineties, when I was growing up and really experiencing the full brunt of that. And now it was happening again. And so I think people went back in to survival mode and sort of disappeared off the streets. For me, I was really nervous about older people in my family because a lot of elders were being attacked because they weren't sort of maybe aware of the news cycle or, or didn't really know to protect themselves. So I was worried for my parents, especially just reading the news as well and and seeing these attacks that were going on in in Melbourne there were some really brutal ones against um, international students and things that were happening internationally like the spa shootings in Atlanta Trump calling it the Chinese virus yeah and I think the Lowy Institute based on their data they found that one in five Chinese Australians had experienced a violent racist attack in that sort of beginning stage of the pandemic Yeah, but certainly amongst myself and my friends, I think there was this sense of here we go again (laughs) and just tiredness and exhaustion at at having to prove why you should (laughs) be able to exist and feel safe in the world. In the blurb of the book, you talk about the joys, the fears and the obligations that are unique to Asian women. Can you talk to me about the use of that word unique. Can you unpack some of the unique obligations and fears that young Asian women face, particularly, I suppose, in contemporary Australia? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the obligations we as Asian women face in contemporary Australia still sort of reflect the traditional obligations that we have. And we've probably um, absorbed those things unconsciously. For example, in domestic settings with family, you know, a lot of the onus is on women to be uh, caregivers and and do a lot of the domestic labour or, you know, a lot of your role in the family is having kids and not necessarily being particularly ambitious when it comes to your career. Mm. I consider myself super progressive feminist, but then in the back of my mind, there are still things that I feel like would make my parents happy, even though they don't say it out loud. 
if I were to get married one day, I imagine they'd want me to have like a tea ceremony. (laughs) I feel like they would really appreciate a son-in-law that they share a language with. And I think so much of that obligation and cultural expectation is intermingled with just love for your family, right? And even if it's not something that you necessarily believe you want to do things that are going to bring joy to the people that you care about. That sounds so naff, but you know what I mean? You do. You do. I, I you know, I'm a, my father is an Indian born Muslim man. And when I got married, it was the least traditional version of marriage you could possibly imagine. You know, I didn't want anyone to walk me down the aisle. Cause I was like, oh, no, no, yeah. it's not, it's not for me. And I remember my mum sitting me down and saying, you will break his heart. <gasps> oh, and my I was like, gosh. Okay, so we're doing, doing it. it. We're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> this is not your first piece of work that looks at the experience of Asian Australian women, particularly young Asian Australian women. There is your incredible play, Single Asian Female, and then the SBS series, Homecoming Queens as well. When you're writing, and for so many different genres, I suppose, Are you writing to fill a gap that you witnessed when you were growing up? Are you writing what you wish you'd had or is there another intention there? I think, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head because definitely growing up, I rarely had any kind of representation. So a large part of, especially with single Asian female, I really didn't feel like I had a story to tell. And then I was sort of doing workshops that led to the creation of that play. And it was very much, well, what what about your specific point of view in the world that you haven't seen before needs to be told. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I was writing this blog about what it was like to be a single woman who was Asian in Australia. And I've never seen that on screen or on stage before in a meaningful way that wasn't, you know, two-dimensional or super stereotypical. I wanted to give a voice to those experiences. And definitely it was just the most meaningful experience to have audience members who were young Asian women going to see it, who'd never seen anything like that. Uh, and that, and bringing their families as well. Uh, Cause yeah, growing up, I, I didn't have anything really. I had Leland Chin reading the news. Yes. I had, I had Cindy Pan, the celebrity doctor. <laughs> Besides that, I guess like ads for Maggie and Canton noodles. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when, when we were kids, my sister and I were obsessed with and she's not real, she's a cartoon character, but Guy, who was from Asia, like all of it, <laughs> uh, on Captain Planet. And yeah. We, we were so excited by that. And we're from the subcontinent, but we were still thrilled. Absolutely. You just sort of pick at whatever you can and there's when there's so little available to you, you just feel completely um, starved. And I didn't mm. want younger people to feel that way and I'm – really happy if if my work sort of contributes to that catalogue. When did you first realise that you were good at writing? And I want to follow that up with, when did you first realise that you liked it? Because I don't think those two things always come together. That's so true. That's such a good question. I always liked reading as entertainment and as an activity because I was more of um, an introverted person who stayed at home and was a bit dorky. I knew that I was good at it, I guess, in the last years of high school 
because I was sort of the nerd of the English class and I talked yeah. English and so I was a real English teacher's pet and just sort of asking my English teacher for extra homework and like asking her what book oh, she liked. No. <laughs> <laughs> asking what book she liked because I guess I was bored of the text that we were learning in class. Mm. And then she recommended Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, which is super probo, would not recommend it these days. <laughs> but, you know, reading it as a high schooler, there was something about it that really made sense to me and I'd never experienced mm. that reading literature before. I always just thought it was a fun time. But because I grew up feeling quite lonely and really isolated because I was born and grew up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, which is quite monocultural. It's mostly white. We were one of the handful of Asian families there. And I had alopecia growing up as well. And so I just felt really removed and alone. And reading this book about a character who also felt that way, but managed to make something of her life. Side note to the detriment of a woman of colour. It really blew my mind at the time because I didn't realise that I could connect so strongly to a character that was created in 19th century England by an author who was long dead. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really incredible. And imagine if I could do something like that one day. So that was when reading and writing made sense to me. And I knew I was good at it because the first piece I had published was in an anthology edited by Alice Pong called Growing Up Asian in Australia. And that was really exciting because I realised I could give it a real go and potentially make a career out of it. And I knew that was possible because my brother, Ben, he's eight years older and he was already working as a freelance writer. So I was like, okay, like it's something that's achievable. You mentioned the word monocultural and I wanted to ask about the Australian arts and literary scene, which are both fairly monocultural. There has been some movement, I think, in recent years, although nothing particularly earth-shattering. What do you think it will take to change that, to change the way we tell Australian stories and perhaps more importantly, which Australian stories we tell? Mm, It's a big question and I think a lot of conversations have been had about diversity to the point where it's become a buzzword Mm. and it has lost all meaning. I think there are people who are working in the industry who are white, who are really good intentioned. And this is sort of what my next big work is about, which is about diversity in the, in the arts in Australia. (laughs) There's a lot of good intentions, but no real action. You know, I think we've done workshops and, and mentoring sort of to death and it's time to see people in leadership positions and roles where they can actually make real systemic change. Something that's worked a lot in the UK and the US in the arts has been the dreaded word quotas, which I personally think is necessary. The main argument against quotas is this idea of the meritocracy, which I think is completely false because everyone is playing some version of a card whether it's, you know, the white card or the straight card or the male card. And so it's time to give people who are just as qualified and just as talented, who have different cards, a a chance at the table. And I think until people actually make space and um, realise that there's 
a level of personal sacrifice involved. Yeah. Things won't significantly or meaningfully change before that, I think, quite cynically. And I understand that. Like if you're in a position of power, it would be scary to relinquish some of that. But I think the fact that they realise it's scary to relinquish that power speaks to the fact that they know they're benefiting from their privilege. I remember feeling really frustrated in the discussion of women's representation at the beginning of last year when the Prime Minister talked about growing the pie for everyone. I'm all for growing the pie, but (laughs) once it's grown, it's still just a big pie. You've still got to split it up. And we know that some people get more pieces than others and consistently get more pieces. I think when we're writing, the best writers are always considering what they're putting out into the world from the perspective of the audience, thinking about how it's going to be received, how it's going to influence someone, how it's going to make them feel. And while thinking about our audiences is so important to good writing, you also have to block some voices out to write well, I think. Mm -hmm. Who do you have to block out? Who are the people who are potential critics or would make you write scared? Who do you have to not think about? Uh, I think anytime you're firstly a woman, but then when you're a woman of colour who is in the public eye, you, you're going to have a lot of people who dislike you or mm. um, are trolls or haters. And I think I've gotten very adept at just blocking out the world when I need to get writing done. And I wonder if that's sort of training from when I was a young kid being in quite threatening situations, you know, for example, if we had some some people breaking into our yard and watching my siblings and I play Monopoly in the living room through the living room window and calling us Asian sea bombs. Wow. So, and that happened from quite a young age, like primary school age or having people driving past and yelling like China or, or rice. You get very adept at trying to ignore other people whose opinions don't matter. And so I think that's helped me a lot in shutting out other people's opinions. That's not to say I don't get affected by things as well, but at the end of the day, like I know who my readers are and I'm really speaking specifically to them and the work is always in service of those people. And so you don't want the work or yourself to be censored especially if you're not going to reach those people with the message you have to tell them. So I I always, especially with things online, I always try to step back and just remind myself that the internet is in the scheme of things a small place, (laughs) even though it does infiltrate so many parts of our lives. It's not real life and, and, and it doesn't affect the people that I love and care about, which is my family and friends. And just grounding yourself in like in your physical world, I think is helpful. That is incredibly good advice. And I am just so sorry that you had to learn that lesson in the way that you did. (laughs) But as one of your very grateful readers, I am so glad that you are focused on us and nobody else. Thanks for being my guest on the weekend briefing, Michelle. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. That's it for my conversation with Michelle Law. Asian Girls Are Going Places is available now at all the good bookstores and probably some bad ones too. Don't go away. The weekend list is on the way. 
Kate McGregor is here for the weekend list. She tried to leave everyone. She tried to leave, but she couldn't stay away. It's my magnetic personality and the joy of being with all of you listening. Welcome, Tate. Thank you for having me. Yeah, can't stick away. Got to be back with you. I'm very, very thrilled to have you back, even briefly, filling in for Brooke and Linda from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club podcast. What have you got to recommend for me today, my friend? I'm going to kick it off with a watch that I have been hanging out for for over a year. There's an HBO series called Euphoria. I think it came out in 2020 and season two has just dropped. It's executively produced by Drake. So you know it's going to be this like edgy sort of deal. Scored by Labyrinth and stars Zendaya, Sydney Sweeney, who we've talked about from The White Lotus and an Aussie actor called Jacob Elordi. This show is just like... It's visually stunning. They've got the lighting down pat. They've got the set design down pat. It's just like incredible to watch, but also you get really invested into the characters. It's kind of like this gritty teenage drama that talks about sexuality, romance, drug abuse, popularity. But I do warn you, it can be quite dark. Season one was a dark season and we've been warned that season two goes even darker. So if you're feeling kind of in a... Uh, loopy frame mine maybe wait a little bit to watch this one I cannot recommend it higher there's two episodes out at the moment I think you can watch it on binge and I can't wait for the next one to drop comes out every Monday so euphoria HBO series season two so we're watching for the grit not for the good times it's not a cheerful show. Not super cheerful, no, but it is something that you will find a lot of joy in. You do get invested into these characters who are like going through these big changes of heart and really discovering things about themselves. So you'll see a little bit of yourself in there. You know, it's all about self-discovery and we love that, but we all know self-discovery can be hard. How you doing? You know I need your love. As soon as I saw her, I was just immediately afraid to lose her. When you relapse. You got that hold over me. So, Rue, the $64,000 question is, what's in the suitcase? I am going to stick with uh, television for my recommendation, and it is also cheerful, but not all the time. I want to recommend season two of Cheer on Netflix. So, for those who missed it, the first season of Cheer, which is a Netflix docu-series, debuted in January of 2020. It was a massive hit, absolutely massive, critically acclaimed as well as popular, which of course we know the two don't always go together. It is about a group of cheerleaders at a college in Texas called Navarro Junior College, and it's about their coach, Monica Aldemar. And it is about the incredible hard work and athleticism of cheerleaders, right? Like it is incredible to watch from the flips and the jumps and the towers and the all the things. All of that is interesting. But what actually makes the heart of this show are the characters and the people who are participating in cheerleading and who are around cheerleading and whose lives are defined by it and the background of these young kids who have come to college on cheerleading scholarships who for the most part are not particularly academic, many of whom who've come from marginalised, disadvantaged backgrounds and they're trying to make it while essentially sacrificing their bodies for this sport which is not kind (laughs) to your joints in the long term. So that was uh, the first season, came out January 2020, right at just before the pandemic hit and was a big hit. Season two has now come out. There's been a huge amount of development since 
the first season. Of course, there has been the interruption of cheerleading competitions in the United States because of COVID, disruption to these kids' education, disruption to their safety and well-being, of course, because of the pandemic. And one of the most loved characters, and this isn't a spoiler, it's been in the news for some time now, one of the most loved characters of the first season was a guy called Jerry Harris. He was absolutely adored, this kind of personality that you couldn't help but feel affectionate towards. He was arrested and charged with sexual assault after the first series went to air. And so the second series I think is particularly interesting because it has to unpack this. It has to deal with this horrible reality of one of their most beloved stars turning out to be a guy who had allegedly committed a really serious crime and a number of crimes. It is really deftly dealt with. The show broadens this year and opens up to a second college and looks at a competitor college who are also in the running for the national championship. And it is completely engrossing. I don't think I knew anything about cheerleading before this show. And now I am completely obsessed. Growing up, we moved from house to house. I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight, but I know tomorrow at six o'clock I'm going to cheerleading practice. It's definitely the hardest season I've ever had. One of the show's breakout stars is facing a 15-year sentence. I can't even, like, process it right now. Everyone just felt lost. Cheerleading is the only thing that could get my mind off of everything else. Professional athletes, especially college professional athletes, are just so mind-blowing that these young people can dedicate this much of their life to this sport and then see all their external drama and all the, like, internal relationships. It's, yeah, something to be invested in. I think no matter what sports you're into or whether you're not even someone who's that into watching sport anyway, Mm. as long as you are interested in watching people at the top of their game push themselves... This stuff is fascinating. Watching their drive, watching the mental grit and determination that's required, that's what I find most engaging. The kind of cool flips and stuff is just a bonus. What else have you got, Tate? My next recommendation is a listen from a New Zealand producer called Bank, B-A-N-Y-K. He just dropped his debut album, Adolescence, this month, and it is astounding. Okay, I would probably describe his production style as like an intelligent, low-key, kind of like a delicate, flowy bass. But he collaborates with these huge artists like Tinashe. We've got some locals like Cosmos Midnight, Cubsport, Golden Vessel. But his ability to like bring out the best in these other artists and kind of combine their sounds is unparalleled. You listen on like a Cosmos Midnight track, they're really bouncy and all that sort of stuff. And then Bank is able to bring this low-key energy to something that's normally really tropical and fun. I think it's a really easy listen and a really easy in for someone who's not super into electronic music. If you want to just dip your toes into some electro pop, something to put on in the background, check out Bank and his album Adolescence. had no time for anything but television over these holidays so I'm gonna go TV again I want to recommend Love Me which is another show that's on binge it is an Australian made TV show it is set in Melbourne so for any Melbournians there is that little thrill when you see places in North Melbourne or Carlton and the like that you recognize this is 
one of the most beautiful television shows I have seen in a really long time. And I am honestly quite confused why more people are not talking about it. I feel like I need to shout it from the rooftop so everyone realizes how good it is. It is full of grace and it follows three people's romantic relationships. We come to realize in the first episode that those three people are part of a family, a father and his two kids, but we look at each of their individual romantic relationships. It is a first season original series. I so hope there will be more. It focuses on these three people, Clara, who's in her late 30s and single. She meets a guy on a dating app and she works as an anaesthetist in a hospital. Then there is Aaron, who is her little brother, 20-ish law student, who is having some really great sex with his girlfriend who may not be a great person. And then there is their father, Glenn, who is played by Hugo Weaving in one of the most incredible performances of his life. And I don't want to talk more because there is developments in that first episode that I don't want to give away, but I don't know how Hugo Weaving does what he does. I don't know how he can be looking into the camera and apparently not say anything and not even move the muscles in his face and yet convey so much emotion and so much complex emotion and changing emotion in a single glance. This was so beautiful. I sobbed in almost every episode. There was only one episode that didn't get me crying. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Do you actually want to be in a relationship? And it's totally fine if you don't. I do. Then what are you doing? (laughs) Seriously, it's trial and error. And mainly, it's error. That's it for the weekend briefing today. A massive thank you for Tate McGregor for popping by. Please do so again. Don't be a stranger. If you liked today's episode, then you should come and visit us more like Tate. You should drop in on the regular. The best way to do that is to subscribe. You can do that in the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, you know what to do. Leave us a cheeky rating and a review. Actually do that though this time because it will help other people to find the podcast. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning where we'll have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.